Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back my really good friend, Alistair McDonald. Hi, Alistair. Mike, it's great to be with you again. Thank you kindly for coming on the podcast. So what's new in the world of Alistair? Oh, goodness. Uh, so many interesting puzzles coming across my desk these days with this the the changes that we're seeing in financial markets are likewise showing up in the cross currents of social indicators as well. Uh, so it, this is a particularly interesting time. I think it's not old the, the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, uh, and we definitely do. Um, so yeah, lots of beautiful projects, really interested to just spend time with clients and friends and get a sense of where everybody is with their own professional aspirations uh, in light of the rise in the cost of capital, uh, geopolitical risks. And it, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it just really supports so much of my own lived philosophy and expectations that we're constantly in a cycle and it's just where in the cycle are we. So knowing where we are gives me great comfort to navigate the road ahead. But interesting times, for sure. So on that on that line, of, um, where are we in the cycle? Are we essentially going into recession? Or have we already should be in a recession? And what is the grand cycle? Obviously, expansion, peak, recession, bottom. I assume we're somewhere on the way down. Yeah, there's. I think it's important to think about this as cycles operating at multiple degrees of scale, this is important. So to use some examples, we could uh, we could be looking at intraday interest rate swings couched inside multi-month cycles, couched inside much larger 40-year interest rate cycle that we've been through from 1981 to 2020. Uh, and this shows up likewise in standard kind of technical analysis. You've got Kondratiev wave cycles the lasting 75, 76 years, all the way down to juggler cycles and these types of things that will operate over a course of a couple of years or a few months. So I think it's important to see the world this way, just as we do months, days, hours, uh, minutes, seconds. It, it's critical that when we're looking at data, we have a contextual place to, to place it. So when we look at, for example, um, a very valuable, though leading indicator, and I think we'll be speaking more about this, is uh, unemployment numbers. Everybody says, oh, they're lagging data. That's true, but that doesn't frustrate you if you see them as being a multi-month or multi-year indicator. They're worthlessly lagging if you're trading monthly or you know, making one-year-out one year decisions. Uh, so we have to have a... a all of these indicators are valuable to the extent that they're nested within the relevant time contexts, if that makes sense. You know, we spoke just last week at the event we both enjoyed where somebody will say, well, I know somebody who's done really well in fill in the blank. And if you look at the context of when that person did well or did poorly, 
you can understand entirely whether or not that is skill attribution or just fortunate timing. And the same is true with indicators that we look at. Uh, I think it's a critical piece and nobody speaks about it enough. So much so that you'll hear one economist or one forecaster, one business owner reference a piece of data and somebody else on the panel will dismiss it as being irrelevant. And, and more often than not, it's not irrelevant. It's just not the framework or the, the time context that the other party sees the world through. It's a critical distinction, not made often enough. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And it's almost amazing how same piece of data could be looked at by two different experts and they see different messages. And uh, thank you for the clarification on the cycles. There are some very long cycles and some short cycles and well, let's touch on this, on the interest rate cycle. So we're in a very long declining interest rate cycle. And now we have obviously drastically reversed the direction. And we, we went very fast and furious from essentially zero interest rate, the ZERP policy of many years, into now we, on a long-term long historic basis, the interest rates we are in right now are not necessarily particularly high. It's just the, the speed of change was just gigantic. On, from that perspective. So are we, have we entered a period of um, long uh, interest rates being at least this level, maybe even elevated level, um, or gonna cycle back down? Because there's a lot of people asking the question, when the rates gonna go back down? They're no longer asking the questions whether the rates are going up or how long. It's pretty clear, at least we, we the Fed has been pretty consistent that they're almost done. They're almost done pushing the rates up, maybe a little a little bit more room required. And uh, I also wanted to touch on the point that you mentioned that the unemployment is basically a leading indicator for a lot of uh, economic um, output and a lot of our coming prosperity for the future. We are at a very historically low uh, point of unemployment, almost strange, strangely low. Um, and... Um, I'm just concerned, how do we climb out of this situation with the immigration being subdued over the last couple of years? The U.S. is missing multiple millions of legal immigrants that should have come over and COVID prevented it. And we are in a deep uh, hole, missing great labor and not clear how we're going to get out of this hole. And uh, this is almost like a structural problem uh, at this point, because you can't get inflation under control without doing something about unemployment. It's the good old Phillips curve. When unemployment is very low, inflation is high. And it's, it's hard to push inflation down, although it is coming down, but it's hard without solving the unemployment problem. So a lot, I know it's a lot, but love to hear your thoughts on multiple subjects. Yeah, there's definitely all important issues. And though connected, they stand alone in terms of what they tell us. Uh, I think to the first part about interest rates coming down, just the exact phrasing you used is a perfect indicator right now of you're capturing current sentiment perfectly. And the, the very premise being, as you said, now everyone's wondering, when are they going to come down? Well, three months ago, we were going to ask, when will they ever stop rising? What that tells us as sentiment being the indicator that it is, sentiment equally occurs at different degrees of scale. How do you feel about 
interest rates uh, this month? And how do you feel about interest rates over the next five or 10 years, for example? It's very, very important that we place the lattice work of some sort of time-bound context to everything that we're discussing, if it's going to be of any value. Or we'll end up disregarding critical data and overweighting data that doesn't serve us at this degree of scale. So it was actually back in September, October at that same event that you and I shared uh, out in Texas, where at the time I was saying, I can see interest rates declining by the first quarter of next year, now 2023. The question is, will mortgages come down commensurately with interest rates? And they, they have, and they have not, meaning interest rates have pulled back and the expectation that they'll continue to fall is now everyone's just waiting. It's just a matter of time. So we've now got a conviction of ongoing interest rate declines, just like we had a conviction back in October of ongoing interest rate rising. What does that say? That tells us exactly what's already happened, meaning that we could now pull up a chart and we would see that saturation of opinion back in November and the saturation of opinion today. It's a very quick turn for sentiment shifts uh, on 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 such a big issue, which is interest rates. So that's absolutely happened. Uh, the second point where I said, is it, I don't believe that we can necessarily assume that mortgages will come down commensurately as an equivalent percentage as interest rates might fall. And that has worked out perfectly accurate. Uh, the, 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 the reason I gave back in September, October is that we now have an appetite, a lived experience of inflation. So those that are lending capital are finally, after 40 years of not having to factor it into their expectations, are now going to bake it in until they're convinced otherwise. That will probably be about the end of this year, where they're less concerned about inflation. So I just find it really interesting how sentiment lags what has already happened and serves as a beautiful contrarian spot for us to take the other side. So though we've seen interest rates come down and we've certainly seen mortgages come down, mortgages, the 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 uh, the gap, the, the risk premium between the two has widened in the last four months for, I, I think, for exactly that reason. Uh, so this brings up the issue of inflation itself. Um, I am, and there's, there's very, very strong econometric modeling that can show this. So very little opinion is required here. But it is known to me, which is to say I'm clear that the Federal Reserve is absolutely not the one that is bringing inflation down, as the CPI has declined consistently now for six months. It is not at all the Fed. And we actually know this from data going back many, many years, work actually, oddly enough, by the Federal Reserve and then economists at Princeton as well, showing that really there's about a one-year lag between the effect of uh, monetary policy on the inflation rate. And those, the best research for that was done in rising inflation in the 70s and then falling in the 80s. So we've got full cycle analytics that can support this. What could possibly have created it? Well, we know in the commodities markets that the cure for high prices is high prices. A lot of what we've seen is the, the compensatory opening up of supply channels since uh, in a post-COVID constricted debacle that we all lived through. That is what has made things easier and brought down uh, CPI, which is a far tighter turn. The supply demand curve speaks to that than Federal Reserve's policy. The question about what's happening with interest rates, the Fed always follows the market. I've been saying this for 19 years. 
and it has worked out perfectly. The Fed, just as the ECB does, just as the Bank of Japan does, just find your nearest, wherever you live in the world, your proxy for the 90-day T-bill. Wherever the 90-day T-bill goes, uh, the uh, the Fed or the ECB or the BOJ or the Bank of Canada or what have you uh, will, excuse me, all follow as well. What does this suggest? Well, the two-year note has been particularly valuable to watch through this rising cycle since July of 2020, August of 2020, where we could see the Fed arrives late, overshoots, overcompensates on the downside, overcompensates on the upside, uh, and we continue to believe that Oz has magic behind the curtain. It, it's really quite intellectually embarrassing. It's fascinating to me, even with the friends I have in finance, including some of whom have managed the largest pools of bond market capital in the world, still are insistent that the, these incredible witch doctors at the Federal Reserve can control all policy. <clears throat> Excuse me, they don't. Uh, and we know this because QE was launched during the financial, prior to the financial crisis, worst days. And the worse things got, the more they threw money at it. You know, if something didn't work three times, but it worked on the fourth time, can we say that it works? You know, no, of course not. Uh, nonetheless, watching the two-year tells me that it's inevitable that the Fed will have reversed policy on interest rates by the end of the year. It's inevitable, just given the lag. That's very powerful. I, I appreciate the wisdom, and uh, I, I love that um, critical point that the Fed really never leads the follow. And in uh, the size of the bond market is 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 so large that the market itself um, decides where the price is called, not the Federal Reserve. And the action um, following the, uh, the term that that uh, I pick up from the book, um, uh, what's the book name? Um, I'm blanking out for a second, but it's called long and variable uh, legs. So the fact that they they push the rates up, it takes them, could easily take 12 months before the outcome and uh, it actually takes place in the economy. So all the action that they've done since they started increasing interest rates until now, not even clear that it, it's them getting inflation under control. And as you pointed out, it, it's other forces, not the Fed, that's impacting inflation more than the Fed. And of course, politicians, and they'll take the, the credit for, for getting inflation under control when the reality is it's something else that's driving the inflation, not necessarily Fed pushing the rates up, although it does have obviously impact. Sure. Yeah. It's just not what everybody thinks it is. To the point about the Fed not controlling interest rates, this is so egregiously misunderstood that even Bill Clinton didn't understand it. When interest rates started to rise in the 90s, he turned to his uh, then secretary, Lawrence Summers, and said, well, just lower the interest rate. And he said, Mr. President, you don't understand. We don't control it. You can put it out there, but the market will move your interest rate regardless of what you think. Uh, the best example, really, is look at what when people say, well, the Fed, all they have to do is make money cheap. Well, that's exactly what they started doing in July of 2007, fully six months before the recession even began, and continued to chase money, uh, interest rates, drive them down to zero. And yet, what happened? Well, lending still tightened up, Lehman still went bust, housing still fell. Why? Because the United States is a current, excuse me, a credit-based system. And a credit-based system means you need not just a willing lender, which the Federal Reserve is, but a willing borrower. So if either one of these individuals is bearish or concerned about their future, they just won't show up for the trade and the entire mechanism breaks down. And this is why and exactly how the financial uh, crisis occurred 
even in an environment of increasingly cheap money. Because it, when, when you are extremely worried about your future, as individuals were then, no amount of free money is a good price. I've already gorged myself on credit. That's why I'm, de that's why I'm excessively leveraged and upside down, in this case, on my house. No amount of making money cheaper changes my outlook for the future. Uh, when you're upside down, you're worried about the present. You're not making long-term plans. You know, when somebody is is starving, they're not worried about their PL, they're trying to just get to zero. Of course, people have to keep the lights on before or food and shelter before they they they, they do anything else. So what's yeah. the forward direction? Um, where are we going? Uh, you mentioned that the 90-day bill or two-year bill is telling us the Fed will start lowering rates by the end of the year. And I want to take it in, in the context, it's not just the lower interest rates. Or uh, We have a massively inverted yield curve, which is a strong indicator of what I like. Yes, the worst it's been since 90, April of 1981, which presaged a brutal recession. So are we going into brutal recession? Is that the, the indication... Or can this be a mild recession? Can this be some kind of a soft landing? Because right now, the other point that you mentioned in the past was a guess that I've heard you speak multiple times. The interest rate is a true gauge of risk. Uh, and finally, the interest rates are up and, they, and a gauging risk that the risk is on, the, the risk light is substantially on. Um, are we just not, is it sort of, it's a little bit feels like a little calm right now. Are we we're gonna see a big storm? Or uh, there's still a good possibility to some kind of soft landing and whatever that means. Just, just curious your thoughts. Yeah. Well, first to the point about the Fed and and you know their uh, the interest rates they do control, which is the overnight rate to a small group of financial institutions. Uh, what happens here is any time that the government meddles with an otherwise uh, equal trade. You know, we talk about fair trade. We want to. We want to. With little stickers on our bananas that say fair trade. Well, there's no other type. All trade is fair. And if it's not fair trade, it's not trade. It, it's, it's preposterous. But what makes us feel good is with this little sticker on our banana. Any time that the Federal Reserve or the government in any nation interferes with a standard private transaction, we inevitably distort the incentives and distort the risk. The best, largest, most egregious example is student loans. Student loans have been absolutely the reason for the profound spike in the cost of tuition in the United States. So under the guise of helping people, all that's happening is they're giving drugs to drug addicts. And the same is true with interest rates. When you get a public institution interfering in the money, the price of money that they lend to other lenders, banks and institutions, you create a distortion of the risk. You break the light on the dashboard, as we've, we've discussed previously and you just touched on. What this does is that when you distort our assessment and ability, the only real ability we have to, at a glance, assess risk, that's what interest rates are, you know the difference. If I say this thing pays, this government bond pays 20% and this one pays 2 you know exactly the quality of risk difference between the two. So this distortion has profound impacts throughout society. Uh, and it makes, what it does is it fuels and rewards speculators and punishes savers. So the, the prudent are suffocated and drowned out by the, the uh, uh, typically the most nefarious, questionable uh, 
uh, and loose risk-playing characters in society, inevitably it ends with the FTX-type blower, where people are speculating so aggressively on free money that they end up trading in things that quite literally have zero value. They have no value at all, but we become convinced that they do, provided we can find someone else to pass the buck to. So to your question about the recession, uh, there's two things about this that have my attention. The first is every single leading economic indicator that has ever successfully anticipated a recessionary call is clearly signaling that one lies ahead, not the least of which is our unemployment rate. At 3.4% unemployment, everybody, rearview mirror, mirror looking as they are, if they don't dismiss unemployment because they say it's lagging, again, that's just somebody that's not paying attention to the bigger picture. The beauty of unemployment rates is that they are mean reverting. We know that over the course of 100 years or 75 years of data, what have you, we see a low of 2.9 and a high of about 11 or 12. So if we're sitting at 3.4, a period of rising unemployment always uh, associates itself with a recession, depending on how aggressively it turns. But everything, every leading economic indicator that is worthy of respect from uh, Michigan sentiment surveys to uh, uh, the uh, uh, suppliers, wholesale purchases, business uh, ownership index sentiments, et cetera, are all pointing to a recession, at least certainly beginning in 2023. The what, So that feels like a very low, like a soft pitch call to say it's it lies ahead of us. The only thing that concerns me is that never in my life having lived through all of the uh, uh, recessions and contractions, asset deflations, hyperinflations that I have, I've never seen a recession that so many people were anticipating or talking about. It seems to be on everybody's lips. And that has the inner contrarian in me saying, this is not contrarian at all anymore, which is strange. That tells me that either we're very wrong uh, and it won't happen at all, or if it does, it will be something that nobody is expecting, which is brutal. Uh, so I, I'm. Those are the waters that I'm. That, that's the, the the way I'm kind of trading through this myself. Uh, it's it's a really strange strange time. Great commentary. You know, it reminds me. Remember the movie Matrix, when Oracle tells Neo, "Don't worry about the the vase," and he is listening to her and turns and hits the vase and the, and the, and the vase falls, drops. And she said, what's going to tickle, tickle your mind uh, most is if I didn't say anything, would you have still broken the vase? So we are in this kind of a conundrum where everybody is saying there's going to be a recession and everybody's saying the vase is going to, is going to break. But, the funny thing is, if nobody was saying, and 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 back to your point, so it's a very powerful um, mental exercise that we all expecting. So if you if you anticipate and you prepare, it it it, it inevitably it, it, it inevitably is going to happen because we are all tightening up, we're all gearing up, we're all scared, and that uh, is is a big driver. The, the consumer sentiment is a huge driver of actual uh, outcome, and the sentiment both the business sentiment and the consumer sentiment are, are going in the wrong direction. So uh, I guess the next question is, as investors, kind of 
predicting and seeing, expecting recession. We're all sitting with an action. This is what, what really just happened. Investors are very nervous and very careful, and they are almost avoiding or reducing their uh, investments unless they can somehow feel some kind of strong downside protection, some security mechanism. So anything that has high degree of risk doesn't feel like it's something worth participating in this environment. So what should investors do? Do they sit in their hands and wait? Or do they continue to invest and how they, they change the investment perspective? I'd just love to hear kind of your thoughts because certainly risk light is on on the dashboard. And it's 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 probably a pretty substantial risk. The color is yeah. red bright, but what do we do? Well, you know, to your first point about the recession, just I think it's while it's widely discussed, what is worth noting if we go one tier lower or deeper into it, you'll see that it's discussed and it's largely dismissed as y'all will if we have one. It's on everyone's lips. No one's necessarily saying it's going to happen. Uh, some, you know, Uber bears, perma bears are, but there seems to be just anecdotally a sense that I'm getting from listening to and reading what I do is a sense of, okay, well, either, no, we'll probably skip one for now. If we do get one, it's going to be mild. Uh, nobody, very few people are apocalyptic about it. And that's fine. It's just an observation. So I say that because, uh, it reminds me of that beautiful old Wall Street saying that every bull market climbs a wall of worry and slides down a slope of hope. So though this is an, an observation, excuse me, that has been very useful for me over the years, where even the bad news is good, uh, that always happens before decline. So yeah, we could have one, but it won't be bad. That's the good news. Likewise, on the other side of the cycle, when we have bottomed and are starting to climb that wall of worry, even good news is bad. So, well, yeah, you know, unemployment is, we're talking about the next half of the cycle. You know, once the turn is made and we're starting to rise again and things start looking strong, economists and pundits will say, yes, they're improving, but it's just temporary or but it's, you know. So I've, I've noticed that observation to hold up every time over the years. And it's uh, just an interesting one for me. Uh, even the bad news is good. Uh, versus well, the good news is bad. News is bad. Yeah. Um, I think that we, this came up in our conversation last week at the event, but uh, talking about our own discernment, we, I, I don't think any of us really can afford at any time to be all in or entirely completely out. Having said that, uh, in December, December 21, December, January timeframe, I moved to the largest cash position I've ever had as a percentage of assets since October of 2000, or August of 2007. So overwhelmingly, uh, about 90% in T-bills, short-term treasuries, and so forth. Um, just because they, well, why would I do that? So I say, I don't, th I think it's not necessarily sensible for us to operate on I'm all in or all out, which is investors instinct, uh, rather to say what merits my capital, what merits my, it has to be merit-based decisions. And which is to say, we need a rule. If we see, if so I had certain rules that suggested to me that any risk that I was buying at that time, December of 21 through January of 22, was unlikely to be compensated 
for the you know, what I was paying for wasn't worth the returns it was likely to give me. So far, that's played out very nicely. But to do that means we have to have, if you have a rule, to, if you've gone to cash or if you're considering it, you must have a rule that is going to be as useful when it's time for you to buy again. And this right away eliminates 95% of that instinct to sell everything or to buy everything. It has to be merit-based. If you had a rule to move you to, let's just say, an increased cash position, then that same rule must be the corollary to that rule. The second rule, the other side of the coin, must equally be the tool with which you spot the opportunities and move back in. And I believe that those are presenting themselves and started to in early November, which is, in my case, emerging markets and China. Uh, just to give an example of where we are, of sentiment extremes, we're at a situation right now, say even the CNN fear and greed index is suggesting incredible greed again. Uh, investors are ebullient. Everything that the Federal Reserve does is great. Uh, you know, they're on top of it. Any excuse to buoy up equity markets. So we're this is a beautiful example of a saturation of, of short-term of bullish opinion. As I say, even the bad news is good. Even if we are going to even find people to say there's going to be a recession, it's not going to be a bad one. What is the antithesis of that? Well, the antithesis of that is a society where you've got draconian laws, lockdown, social riots and disruption, uh, imprisonment of citizens, disturbance in the streets, uh, uh, rising cost of capital, weakening currency, all of these things. Well, what have I just described? China in October, November of last year. This is a contrarian's dream. This is, you know, Rothschild's blood in the streets, quite literally. Uh, well, why would this make sense? Because Chinese equities peaked in 2007. They've been in a 15, almost 15-year 15 bear market. And the worst among them have been their most speculative uh, sectors, internet stocks. These are the ones that I'm currently, and I stand to be wrong as we speak here on Valentine's Day of 23. I just, not necessarily that I'm recommending anybody do this. I just point to it as being, for me, rules that capture my attention, whether or not I execute on them. They've got my attention. Uh, th so I, that's my long-winded answer to your question about, you know, what is an investor to do? If if you have you if you have a merit based system of what qualifies for your capital, then that system should be running at all times. You know you're always screening for opportunities, which is where I mentioned uh, Chinese internet stocks, emerging markets, and China as a whole uh, picked up a couple of over the last couple of months. Could be wrong, uh, but uh, I, I'm not particularly I'm not seeing any reason to disbelieve that yet. Happy to change my mind though, but I haven't had to yet. Yeah, I appreciate that wisdom. Um, I think the biggest nugget is a rule, merit rules-based system, uh, yeah. not emotional responses to what's what's happening. Uh, just more of a scientific way to value um, any asset class relative to its long-term uh, cyclical um, position, and uh, yeah. go in when. The market appears to be greatly undervalued versus. And so there's some things that market, have... This is a broad market position. What yeah. I wanted to add is it's a little bit different uh, when folks participate in real estate deals. They're a lot more local and they're a lot, they have a lot more dynamics. Who do you invest with? 
what you just described, I think, is a very powerful tool on um, global microeconomic basis that the Chinese technology companies look relatively inexpensive based on their long-term um, potential value. And the fact that China is opening up, and it feels like there's a opportunity that those companies can actually prosper in a this utility, even on the local front, as you say, the beauty of real estate is its inefficiencies. Uh, that's really the privilege that that one is capitalizing on in their strategies. Having someone on the ground that can, you know, say it, it's very much like, say, a medical practice or a dental practice, where somebody says, "Well, this little three dental chair practice, it's not worth buying. I would never buy it because you know it's it's too small." Well, I would buy it if it had a a thousand square foot closet, for example. You know, there's inefficiencies there that I could expand it. And, and, and that's really what real estate represents. Uh, so you're right, it's it's local. But the point still remains, which is merit-based. What am I looking for? And how does this opportunity compare to what else I have? Because we're always making relative comparisons. Back in November, October of last year, I was, say, just as an example, just follow that thread, looking at the risk and the valuations of U.S. stocks versus the risk and valuations of Chinese stocks. I'm like, oh, completely way more important. But we can do the same thing when we say, this is the yield I'm getting on this particular property, or uh, this is the, the cap rate I'm buying it at, versus this cap rate, or versus what? It has to be a versus something. All trades are relative at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's all, <laughs> uh, I love this this quote, exactly in line with what you just said, everything is relative. There is no happiness or unhappiness. There's only the difference between one state and the other. If you experience the difference, you can actually appreciate uh, the Delta. Yeah. So, uh, but along these lines, and we, we're running out of time, so just a couple more thoughts and then we got to wrap up. Um, and this has been great. I, I'm so grateful for your wisdom. So, some of the topics we've covered are just, just both able fundamental and critical how people should think about the investing. The married rules statement is just critical because most investors don't have those rules. This is why they struggle because they don't know when is, what, what is the signal because you don't have the signal. Yes. So now, uh, looking at the fact that you mentioned this earlier, that the two-year, another one's a signaling actually, that's giving us forward sort of guidance that the Fed should be beginning to lower rates towards the end of the year, even though they've resisted this and they maintained the face and made every statement possible that they're not done fighting the inflation. Inflation is still a big threat, which makes a lot of sense. So are we likely going to see the rates cycling back down into next year? Obviously, recession would be a good driver of lowering interest rates. And uh, what does it mean from investors' perspective in real estate? Lowering rates is usually good news, but at the same time, the concern is, are you getting good enough deal going into recession? This is the, the biggest question, uh, and, and it's going to be on my mind and many investors' mind. Are we getting a good deal for this particular uh, asset? Because the fact that the rates going to cycle back down is a substantial opportunity for real estate investors. You can always refinance when the rates are down, right? That's one of the biggest benefits by locking in today's rates. With, with expectations of low rates in the future. But how real is this? How, how, will, how likely the rates will cycle back down? And how likely we're going to see great deals? I, I think that, um, again, going back to the first points we were discussing about cycles, the context of our expectations, the time scale 
of our expectations. Uh, I it is remains and and I am thankful to have been paying attention to this at the time, but I am convinced that the July August 2020 lows in interest rates were the lows for our the, the generational lows those that then bled over three months later into 2.65 percent mortgage 30 year mortgages. I think that that represents the low. I don't see us breaking new lows. That is to say that. I believe the long-term interest rate cycle has bottomed and we're now into a protracted long-term rising environment. But because we're talking about, in this case, a 40, 42 years uh, scale, this could take a very long time. Uh, we don't, you know, everyone wants to rush to immediately assume we're going to be at 15% mortgages or something like we were in 1981. Will we get there? Probably, but when? Probably a lot further out than anybody's expecting right now. So over the long-term, or really to say over the next three to five years, let me be more specific, I can comfortably see us in an environment of about three and a half percent unemployment, excuse me, three and a half percent inflation rate and interest rates bumping around five to six percent, very much uh, where we are today uh, with, in with inflation stabilizing to the downside here through the next couple of quarters. And this would beautifully fall right in line with the historical average since 1950, the post-war period. Interest rates around five or six, inflation at about three and a half. I think that's a reasonable expectation for the next three to five years. Uh, what does that do to real estate? Well, it depends very much on the severity, regardless, we could say recession, no recession. But this re this uh, will be predicated quite heavily on the the uptick in unemployment numbers. We, you know, and St. Louis Federal Reserve for your listeners out there, St. Louis Federal Reserve has just phenomenal data freely available to everybody. Go there and have a look at a historical average of interest rates over the last, uh, excuse me, of unemployment rates over the last 70 years. And you'll see this mean reverting data. And it is a long, slow cycle and it is a lag effect, but it helps us shepherd our, our capital paying attention to the long game, which is really the most important thing. Yeah, thank you for that wisdom. And um, yeah, reversion to the mean, that's what they call it, right? Yeah. So sooner or later, uh, the laws of economic gravity will push that unemployment rate higher. Which is but, why that sort of thing is my favorite data. Mean reverting data is my favorite because no opinion is required. That's right. And that is... Um, and I asked this question, I don't know if we, we have any more time, but let's just take another minute or two. Uh, the unemployment data is obviously substantially impacted by labor participation. And labor participation has been sort of lower and lower. I don't know what it is. People um, got used to government giveaways and just don't want to go back to work. It's been a strange pattern. Kind of COVID broke a lot of the past patterns and installed new norms. And then if you look uh, back at the, the immigration point, we're just lagging, we're lagging uh, substantial legal immigration. And I don't know when that's going to come back. But without it, it's just difficult to see, even with a reversion to the mean, how we move unemployment without major layoffs. Or maybe we, we, we will see major amount of layoffs to move us towards 5 5.5%. I, and I don't know what the historical average but if you if you average between two point nine and eleven, you're somewhere in the you know six percent range, and uh, we are so far away from that that we we, we I don't know what it'll take to get us there. Uh, and the other uh, interesting point I wanted to bring up, and I don't I, I don't know whether you feel it, it is a point of concern or not, 
but Japan moved to debt to GDP ratio of 260%. We are far, far, far away from that. That forced Japan to turn into negative interest rates. Nonetheless, our debt to GDP ratio has been growing at a pretty steady clip. And it feels like the government uh, has been almost on a mission to expand. Now, it, it's at least the, the good news is the, we have a split Congress, a split government, and the fiscal responsibility sort of stopped from that perspective. Uh, but the government can never really budget, balance the budget anymore. So we're just going to see greater and greater deficits. And what my point is here is that the amount of private and public debt, it just continues to grow. And the U.S. economy is riddled with debt. It's absolutely riddled with debt. And the higher interest rates, what you mentioned in the 5% plus range, are they sustainable? In other words, the whole system, can it collapse? Can there be debt implosion simply because these high interest rates, which is a way to gauge risk and a way to fight inflation, are just not sustainable with the amount of debt in the system? It's a systemic problem. So what do you think uh, from that perspective? Well, debt is a taxation on future income. Uh, and so we, I absolutely expect that we've entered a period, we're about to enter a period of unbelievable debt loads, governmental debt loads in the United States. I think that we've got way further to go. Uh, and Japan is a good example. So we have to ask ourselves, what was the net effect? What was the most damaging thing for the Japanese? Well, first of all, we're not Japan at all, but we are in some ways. We're not Japan in, a, in that we are a, we're not a homogenous society. We have uh, completely different cultural norms. Uh, the United States, the average American citizen, unlike the average Japanese citizen or European, has never truly needed to make a national sacrifice. Uh, as a function of the United States, never receiving, having war on their soil except against themselves, we've got multiple generations of a culture that has never really seen or had to make individual sacrifice for the greater good. And the best example of this is look at how Americans responded to COVID lockdowns. I don't care whether people think they were worth it or not worth it. Just look at the response in the United States versus all other nations. In Europe, in the UK, in Japan, everybody else fell in line. The United States didn't. Uh, and it's not because of this cry of freedom and so forth. It's because we're not used to making individual sacrifices for the collective. We've never had to put our kids on a train and send them to the north of England because of German bombers were flying. And we've never done these things. This is not bad. I just think it's important and intellectually honest for us to acknowledge it. So I say that because we're not Japan in that way. The Japanese, despite the worst bond market in the world, continue to buy their own bonds with, in some cases, 20 years ago, negative yields, negative, not negative real yields, negative nominal yields. Phenomenal. So what is the net effect? I expect a, a, a very, very large growth in deficits going forward and government debt. And the long term, not the short term, is damage to the currency. That lies ahead for us. Uh, but I think it's further out than most realize. In the shorter term, as in over the next 18 months or so, the US dollar has to and is primed to continue to decline. Uh, but that's not the cycle I'm talking about. I'm talking about the next 20-year cycle where the dollar will lose power. We're not there yet, but uh, I can see that being what lies ahead for us. Yeah, that's very powerful. And thank you for your wisdom. We are out of time. Uh, but this was a great episode. Um, <laughs> 
the uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the debt will continue to grow, and that's yeah. um, at this point it's not no longer a matter of fiscal responsibility. It's just a matter of uh, the country kind of having entered this uh, part of the uh, of its life long long yes. cycle. Back to Ray, Ray, Ray Dalios, the, 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 you talked about um, the cycles and how all great, um, let's just call them dominant powers in the world sooner or later come, come, come to earth and then the, the next great power uh, rising and China is on the rise and the U.S. is on, on a decline and the, 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 the growth of debt. Uh, is a substantial indication of, of a potential decline, as as you said, yeah. we're borrowing from the future generation. Yes. Yep, and we uh, we've become accustomed to just letting Washington do whatever it wants without any sort of recourse. The most egregious example of this, most recently, was the December twenty two uh, Inflation Protection Act, or whatever it was called, unanimous, you know, voted through uh, the House and the Senate. Not one piece of a drop of ink was spilt in just explaining how this was going to be paid for a 1.2 trillion dollar project everyone agreed wonderful nobody bothered to say where we're we going to get the money that's i think it's so the idea that we have you know uh fiscal conservatives and and fiscal liberatives liberals for liberatives uh it's just a joke it's a joke and really it's uh although it's not a joke it, it ends badly but Shame on all of us for what we tolerate from the quote-unquote leadership. Yeah, I appreciate that comment. Unfortunately, our politicians are no longer doing things for the good of the country. They're doing more or less for the good of themselves. And, you know, it's I a popularity contest. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a popularity contest, and everyone is is in the game for their own interests, and, and uh, they want to get reelected. They want to stay in power, and it's, it's like, you know, John F. Kennedy said, it's not what... Uh, the country can do for you what you can do for your country. But this was, yeah. uh, this was eons ago, unfortunately. And we all need to learn from that expression and uh, hopefully come up with a better uh, national unity. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm so grateful. Uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, is there any way for folks to reach out to you and learn from you? Uh, what's the best way to follow you? You know, I have gone so many years without so much as a website. My assistant built one for me last week. Uh, <laughs> and so there's a contact form. If anybody wants to shoot an email, we have a conversation. They can reach me at uh, sovereigndentist.com. For some reason, that's uh, <laughs> that's that's the site. But uh, they can find me there. And uh, But no, otherwise, uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Mike. And let's not leave it so long this time. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.